Hi, everybody. This is Patrick. I have Professor Cecile Asselien with me today, and we're going to discuss her new book titled Teaching Haiti, Strategies for Creating New Narratives. And my first question to her was how timely uh, her book is considering, you know, what's been going on with these manufactured crises regarding CRT being taught in middle schools around the country. Um, yes, first of all, merci en pile. Thank you for having me here, Patrick. I look forward to our conversation. Yes, I think the book is... Um, it could not have been more timely. You couldn't have put it better than um, I could myself because giving the ongoing single narrative um, around and about Haiti from people who oftentimes have no clue about Haiti's complexity, uh, we need to challenge this narrative. And I think for me, the book is a way of doing that. Uh, and it is especially important that sometimes people who are um, teaching in the classroom themselves or contributing to the single stereotypical narrative of Haiti. Remember a time when some people used to say Columbus discovered America and now nobody says that anymore? Well, the good professor is about to do the same thing to a guy named DeWitt Peters, who for a time was being bandied about as the white guy who discovered Haitian art. So again, we have to contextualize um, this by, and I forgot exactly what I said, and I don't have the book right, 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 right in my right. other office. He was a minor American artist. David Peter did not quote-unquote found um, Haitian art or Haitian artists. It mm-hmm. is very much um, an idea of arrogance. You know, it's a colonial mindset for people to take that um, Haitians, Haitian artists were waiting for do with Peter um, to discover, quote unquote, their hidden talent. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think what happened is because being white, being an American, Peter um, Peters, he went to Haiti as part of a project to teach um, the President Lisco's government. Um, it, it was, it, it was in that context that he was in Haiti. And also people have to realize that one of the reason that he went to Haiti, um, if I remember correctly, it's because he didn't want to return, you know, to the U S. So it's again, back when somebody will say, um, something, but because that person is black or of color, they don't think about it. 
And when the white person says it, suddenly it becomes like the Bible, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is my uh, first question ever on this podcast regarding the relationship between voodoo and Catholicism. I plan to dig deeper into voodoo because it's such a central uh, aspect of who we are as Haitians. So I wanted to get the professor's take on, you know, why she prefers the term symbiosis uh, when it comes to the relationship between voodoo and Catholicism. The idea of symbiosis, if we take even of the word, is that you don't have to choose either or. You know, I don't like when people often are thinking, oh yeah, it's either voodoo or Catholicism. Whereas when we think of symbiosis, we think of a mutually beneficial relationship but mm-hmm. we also think about the close interaction. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's wrong for us to think that it's either this or that. We can exist in mutual symbiosis. And mm-hmm. as I think about it, I had um, the great opportunity now about um, over a decade ago to leave in Burkina Faso in West Africa mm-hmm. and to teach uh, there as a Fulbright scholar. And it was at the time, this was in what, 2008, it was a great opportunity for me to see whether somebody was Muslim, whether they were of different um, Baptist faith or Protestant, as we will say in English and French and in Creole or French, or whether they were um, practicing Catholicism or Muslim or animism, how every, how people, the the religion interacted together in in symbiosis without one person thinking, oh, you know, um, my religion is better than your religion. Mm-hmm. And and people, I remember I used to be invited to to um, Ramadan. Um, I will be invited to you know to um, Christmas ceremony. It wasn't either or. In mm-hmm. in one family, you will have this person uh, is is um, Muslim. That other person. Is Catholic. This other person is um, Protestant of different, you know, specific denomination, and that is very important. And mm-hmm. also, people, we need to think more about religion as a spiritual practice versus religion as a cultural um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. practice, or how it, or how we, how it fits into our culture. And mm-hmm. I feel like. Oftentimes with the voodoo religion in Haiti, because it has been so vilified, and we have to put that vilification in the context of colonialism, we do not have time to give voodoo its proper place in most contexts as um, a cultural 
um, practice, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you just heard Dr. Asselien talk about the symbiotic relationship that exists between voodoo and Catholicism. And that prompted me to delve into uh, the role of the public intellectual, who at times uh, seemingly are speaking on behalf of, of the masses, right? And especially the ones who trying to find a way to sort of cleave uh, you know, the African aspects, uh, uh, worldview, uh, you know, that's in voodoo versus the European cosmology, uh, embedded in Catholicism. So she had some interesting take on that. I think we should just accept it as it is. Part of the challenge I see, um, with a lot of intellectuals is that Oftentimes, we think we have like these solutions to these complex issues, and we want to create this binary. We think we have to give people, we think we, we have to give people these answers. And I think we have responsibility as public intellectuals to really look at these complex issues in their context and create space for people who are living this reality to have their voice. One of my favorite um, all-time critics that has really been, who has really been influential to my own work is um, scholar Bell Hooks, who died um, just a few weeks ago mm -hmm. um, uh, last month. And what I and many people appreciate uh, about her work is she constantly challenges intellectuals to think about for whom are we writing or speaking and in what context. We constantly, one of my favorite books by Bell Hooks is Teaching to Transgress. I have to ask myself, what are the ways in which I'm teaching and the ways in which um, I am writing? How am I using them as a form of resistance. Mm -hmm. Am I writing and speaking only for those few people in academia? Am I creating what I'm criticizing? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes as intellectuals, we do that by thinking we have to say, okay, this is where voodoo should be, in what context, in this way, that way. And I don't know how many of us really give center stage to the Mambo and Uga uh, mm -hmm. when we are having these conversations. Mm -hmm. and, I think that's, and I think that's very problematic. The next area we tackle had to do with Haitian art and the global market. Basically, it's exploitation and silencing. Yes, that's a, that's a whole other podcast, Patrick. I mean, yeah. it takes on so many layers, right? From the people who go and buy the art. Let's start with the people in Haiti, Haitian, um, uh, or the 1% of, um, of, uh, Haitians who have lived in Haiti or who are from that, uh, from those, uh, from the so-called upper class 
so-called bourgeois who themselves take this art and get them from people from peanuts. So there's that level of exploitation taking place already in Haiti. The artists are not represented. And then you have the second level of people, um, and they may not be, they may or may not be the same of those people who take them to places in the Caribbean, whether Martinique, um, Guadeloupe, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, etc., etc. And at times, being in that different context, Haitian art will not be made by Haitians. Mm-hmm. And so there's another level of exploitation. Um, and then we come to the academia where it is all about what should Haitian art be. Mm-hmm. And that's another level of exploitation. To give a concrete example, I remember um, prior to coming to Kennesaw State, I taught at um, University of Kansas for um, for about five years. And I was there at the director of the Institute of Haitian Studies. And they have a great, they have a great um, collection of Haitian art. Um, Bernasse Jounet, um, Goog, um, Prophet, like such many great Haitian artists. Unfortunately, there was the collector. I think there may have been one, if that, work by um, women artists. And that's another level of exploitation that we can mm-hmm. talk about. Um, mm-hmm. The marginalized um, uh, role of um, Haitian artists. So, mm-hmm. uh, of Haitian women artists, um, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I got uh, the opportunity to work very closely with um, my um, cu- the curators and my art historian colleagues at the Spencer Museum of Art in Lawrence, Kansas. And during that time, we ended up doing an exhibit in 2018 called The Ties That Bind, looking at the connection between um uh, the U.S. and the United States, and specifically um, the U.S. Um, and Louisiana, to the work of artists um, uh, Ulrich Jean-Pierre, who mm-hmm. has done, who is on the cover of the of the book, and I love that painting mm-hmm. uh, by Desalines, who's standing there like, "Come and get me," you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so. It was very shocking to me how many people were like, oh, my God, um, this is not Haitian art looking at Jean-Pierre's, Jean-Pierre's work. Mm-hmm. It was their idea, their stereotypical idea and version of what Haitian art is and mm-hmm. what Haitian art should be. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, students, because I also taught a class in conjunction with that exhibit and we also had... Um, a conference called the Unexpected Caribbean. So it was all connected. And people were like, wow, um, they only think of Haitian art as market scenes. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a way in which Haiti is relegated to just that. Mm-hmm. And so to come back to that, we see the exploitation at all levels. Anything that is quote-unquote different, that's not the stereotype thinking of Haiti as like poverty, the, the machin with, mm-hmm. with like with something on her head and selling mm-hmm. foods that cannot be Haitian art. Mm-hmm. So I think all these are levels that it's problematic. And when you take off um, the breath of Haitian art, uh, I mean, I love the work of um, Vladimir Civil Chalier. I love the work of um, um, uh, Colette. 
Brazil, yeah, I, I love the work of um, um, the, the Haitian artist um, uh, um, Tessa, uh, Tessa, Tessa Max, you know, her whole mm -hmm. work on um, the, her alter ego, Tessaline, thinking of Dessaline. This is mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. your stereotypical, um, quote-unquote, market scene of Haitian art. But people, mm -hmm. people are uncomfortable with that because it challenges the exploitation. So when you mm -hmm. look at the work of the artists I've just mentioned, they're not comfortable with that. One artist I also um, like, who's a photographer, who's doing interesting work, um, is Zeke Matias, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and I also, he has a like really a way of um, his reality series, uh, looking at the perception of self and relationship mm -hmm, to spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I also love the work of um, Alexandra Barbeau. All these Haitian artists are very, are, are very different from what people expect. And when mm -hmm. they see that, they are not comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. because it's not the you know, don't worry, be happy, colorful, exactly. pastoral kind of. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's quite subversive work, yeah. right? That undermines and, and, a lot of yeah. preconceived and notions. Of right? Yeah, and and we forget that many Haitian artists are also um, they also have other career. For example, Alexandra Barbeau, uh, she's you know. A lawyer, author, artist, um, you know, someone who co-founded the Haitian Historical Museum and Archives in North Miami. So the complexity of many of these artists make people mm -hmm. uncomfortable. So they prefer to just hold on to the, the singularity. The next topic that we covered was basically shibboleth as an instrument of uh, for ethnic cleansing, uh, please do a Google search on the 1937 Parsley Massacre, where the Trujillo government uh, put the word out that uh, it's okay to murder any Haitian who couldn't pronounce the Spanish word for parsley because they couldn't roll their R's. Uh, the next time you are thinking, you're lamenting the fact that you you can't open a business in Haiti and that uh, you're considering the DR, and far be it for me to tell you what you do with your money or resources, you might want to keep the 1937 Parsley Massacre in mind. And if you can live with that decision and open a business there, then that's on you. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I will start by saying I remember some years ago, there was a conference. Um, I forgot. I think it was the American um, Association of... Uh, of um, uh, it, it was this this conference of um, uh, World Association. I forgot exactly the title of the conference. And myself, it was supposed to be in the Dominican Republic. And myself and a couple of um, other colleagues, Haitian and non-Haitians, we 
decided not to go. Uh, it was the mm -hmm. Association um, for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora, I think, something like that. And mm -hmm. to me, me not going there, it was a statement because I found it disturbing that an association, and at the time of the conference, I don't remember which, um, which years, this was the time where they were, um, you know, taking Cation out, like no citizenship. I feel like I, as a scholar, I am to a certain level okay with the ways Haitians have been treated. Again, I don't want to speak or preach for everyone, but mm -hmm. um, I do think there's a way in which we have to be, we, we have to be comfortable with the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. And we cannot pretend that, oh, we are going to be neutral. Desmond mm -hmm. Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who died, you know, um, but last week or about a week and a half ago, had said that if you're neutral in situation of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. And um, he talked about, I think the metaphor he used was like if an elephant has its foot on the tail end of a mouse and you say you're neutral, <laughs> the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Mm -hmm. So some people will say, well, I'm neutral. It depends on what type of work are you going to do in the Dominican Republic? What kind of business are you, or, are you going to do? And this is not to say that, that it's a simple issue. Um, and I don't want to sound like, oh, yeah, I have a Dominican friend kind of thing. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I have. I interact with, with Dominican. I have, like, a close colleagues who's Dominican. We have talked. I had invited her to my class. I have another colleague who has lived in the Dominican Republic. We have talked openly. She has talked about her partner um, being um, who sees himself as a person of, um, as quote unquote white and the problematic around that. But I think too many Haitians are like, oh, you know, um, they don't treat me this way. Um, you exaggerate. They don't treat you this way because you're coming with your American dollars. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, Patrick, if we as Haitians, those of us who are in position of power, who can make that decision, that has money, if we say, you know what, we are going to spend a month and not go to the Dominican Republic, we are not going to buy houses in the Dominican Republic, we are not going to send our children to the Dominican Republic. If the Haitian government had said, you know what, let's look at other islands, let's develop um, relationships with Trinidad and Tobago. Let's mm -hmm. develop relationships with Barbados. Let's develop relationships. Well, I mean, Venezuela is a hot mess right now, but let's say, Belize. let's think yeah. about mm -hmm. all the countries that mm -hmm. we can develop relationship with and not go spend um, millions of dollars every year and have the Dominican treat Haitians like dirt, mm -hmm. like we are less than subhumans. So mm -hmm. to any Haitian who's going to build business, who's going to retire to the Dominican Republic, I say, take of the likelihood that your great, great grandfather, somebody um, was treated, was killed, somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody is being treated that way in the Dominican Republic before you make that decision. Because mm -hmm. we have to have a moral compass. We yes. have to have, it's too easy to say, oh, they don't treat me that way. No. Mm -hmm.
And this segment, we really dive deep into the role of Creole versus French in the educational system in Haiti. And how, again, this question of, you know, distance between the experts and the lived experiences of the people uh, comes into play here, uh, as you as you hear from her answer. Well, it's it's really it's really hard to say. Um, I do have some colleagues who are um, part of the Creole um, Academy, Academy Creole, mm-hmm. and there's conversation. So I don't know that. I can say for sure. And, and there's a lot of, um, problematic about who gets to decide, um, you know, uh, how are we going to make it that everything is, uh, all the topics are taught in Creole. And it's a very complex issue. Uh, for me, and this is a, a way of answering your question and then, and at the same token, not fully answering your question because I don't take as we stand right now as far as I know. And again, I'm not part of the academic Creole. One person you may want to interview is Nicola Andre from Florida International University, who is um an amazing Creole uh Creole instructor who has done who has done a lot of work and in fact one of his former students is working on a project um and I'm one of the person on the team with Zuolengo to have a Creole app. So these are mm-hmm. some people you may want to interview now. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Nic- Nicolas André and Naya Toussaint, the mm-hmm. you know, young scholar. But anyway, that was a bigger side. But the problem is I myself um, have had conversations with some of the members of the Creole Academy and I'm not their role aligns well enough or realistically enough with the reality of hate. So I will say for me, that will have to start there. And what I mean by that is I think there should be conversation about what does it mean to teach fully in Creole? Mm-hmm. What is the role of the academy Creole or what should it be? I personally, as somebody who have taught classes in Creole who have co-written um, books on Haitian Creole. Um, I think it's problematic that the Creole Academy, the Academy Creole rather, does not have enough young scholars who are part of the decision-making body. I think they are um, portraying themselves as a, and again, this is my opinion, as a type of watered-down colonial version of the French Academy. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the academy should finding itself in its own term within the context of its own Haitian sensitivity and reality. Within that Creole-French debate, um, I think some of the other questions that needs to be asked is rather how do we ensure that everyone has access to quality education and mm-hmm. also to um, education equally. Mm-hmm. So when we focus the debate on the should it be, should instruction be only in French or only in Creole, um, what does that mean? I personally think um, we should look at models and we should have it in both. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think we should also have complex conversations about what are some of the roles that French has been used and continue to be used to maintain the status quo, to maintain mm-hmm. colorism, mm-hmm. class prejudice, and access to people who only speak Creole mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who are not fluent in French. You know, and mm-hmm. people are using language as capitalism and neocolonialist weapons to maintain the status quo. So -hmm. these are the questions that I think we need to ask. And what's interesting, Patrick, is I think sometimes the people who are having, you know, they get very excited, like everything should be only in Creole, Moise Creolis, you know, Amba Francais. Their children are studying in Belgium, France, Mm -hmm. Switzerland, (laughs) the U.S., Canada, etc. So I think we need to, I'm not saying the discussion is not important, Mm-hmm. I think for once we should look, um, well, we both know how, you know, too many people, especially those in power, do not respect the constitution. If we have two official languages, what are some of the ways in which this should be reflected? And you mm-hmm. and I both know, I was, you know, before COVID, I've been to Haiti where I walk into, you know, um, these different hotels, whether it was Hotel Caribe or another, where I, you know, and... Um, you can't see me, but I'm a woman with locks. And they just look at me and I start speaking Creole. This is me being the agent provocateur that I can be sometimes. <laughs> and they don't, they can't find my reservation. Then I wow. pull out my iPad. I start speaking English. I pull out my American Express gold card. Then they find my reservation. Then I start speaking French. And then the treatment is completely different. Wow. And this is, and I'm not the only one of us who have had this experience. So mm-hmm. we need to have these conversations around language. There needs to be like a, a real bilingual and even multilingual education. We live in a mm-hmm. global world. Haiti is part of that global world. We mm-hmm. need to be, you know, teaching Spanish, Portuguese, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. German, and of course, English. As you mm-hmm. and I both know, when you look at um, migration trajectory, more and more, there are so many Haitians and many of them young people in um, Central and South America, you know, and it's about language has been used as a weapon for as long as we can remember, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and we can we can talk. I mean, it's not me. I didn't make up the term, but there has been a lot of people have used the term linguistic apartheid. I think Michel de Graff, one of mm-hmm. the premier um, um, linguists of Haitian Creole, has done a lot of work showing how the educational system consistently discriminate against children who do not speak French. So um, I imagine this is like the whole plan of the Ministry of National Education, all these big words, they like to use quote-unquote balance, balance, bilingualism. You know, it, it needs to go more than, it needs to be more than talk, you know? Mm-hmm. And because yeah. it still remain very monolingual. And we cannot talk about language and talk about all this when you have a situation where so many um, teachers who are teaching do not have the right level, 
we need to start mm-hmm. and have these conversations mm-hmm. as well. We cannot, we're mixing everything. And that's part of the problem. That's kind of what I'm uncomfortable with, with many people having the discourse about language in Haiti. We, we are not looking, for instance, we need to have an end mindset. What does that look like? What will mm-hmm. it look like if Creole and French coexist in a sustainable and symbiotic way? Mm-hmm. And that will mean that teachers from all levels, going from the central plateau to the north to the south everywhere, needs to have the right level. Mm-hmm. In Creole and in French, so many people take, oh, they can write Creole any way they want. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, say Creole. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's a language. Mm-hmm. It has rules like mm-hmm. any other language. Mm-hmm. So that mindset needs to change as well. And teachers need to be paid, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like right, I right. don't know mm-hmm. how much, but it is disheartening. And it is ridiculous and it is shameful the amount of money or lack thereof that the Haitian government put towards education. Mm-hmm. That needs to change. Kedit, if you're not educating this generation, how are they going to, to take over? Again, mm-hmm. that one percent, I call them soulless vultures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then the yeah. government, they own all the big businesses. And, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and then when they die, they want to come back and be buried in Haiti. You know, somebody once mm-hmm. sent me a, a WhatsApp that said, oh, you know, so many Haitians, they're so patriotic. You know, they were born and spend their money and then live abroad and have all these big houses. But when they die, they want to be buried in Haiti. If you thought we were done with uh, Creole and language in Haiti, uh, you would be wrong. <laughs> we, we dug even deeper into it. Uh, the set of questions I asked her next had to do with, okay, let's say once we've determined that, uh, you know, Creole is going to be, you know, one of the languages in addition to French that's going to be taught in the school system. Well, which Creole? Because uh, from her book, Teaching Haiti, there are three different types of regional uh, 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 Creoles, North, uh, uh, South, and Central. So which one should be standardized, right? Or should you even have one standardized uh, uh, Creole? Uh, some, there are some other argue, uh, who argue that uh, why don't we, we have one s- standard uh, as far as the written uh, language, and we allow space for uh, uh, regionalism. Uh, so that's kind of the answer you're going to hear from her address, this sort of complex and I think uh, a worthwhile uh, uh, a debate and discussion about uh, you know what we're going to teach in the school systems and what what form or forms is 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 it going to take i think we need to have a standard this is what the creole is um this is how it's written within that we bring in all the regionalism mm-hmm. we acting like this is something new this mm-hmm. has been happening like since the world existed and humans have had language 
-hmm. People forget at one point, French was considered vulgar. It was mm -hmm. Latin that was considered the language that people who were educated, that's the language they were speaking. So mm -hmm. I think we get um, boggled down with all these nitpicky things mm -hmm. and we're not looking at some of the key issues. The key issues is how do we make sure we are in a country that is supposedly bilingual? How do we make sure that every Haitian participate equally without any linguistic hindrance? How do everybody in all sectors of society have access to everything? How do we make sure people are not marginalized if they don't speak um, French? You know, how teachers are trained mm -hmm. adequately in Creole and in French. And by mm -hmm. adequately, I mean they need to be able to read and write. This is not the first language that has regionalism. I, I grew up in New Jersey. People will say guys and I moved south when I went to graduate school. People say gal. We say you all, people say y'all. So mm -hmm. a lot of these to me, they are false debates. Mm -hmm. So packet for this school for problem. Mm -hmm. Those are false discourses and they are not the real problem. Mm -hmm. There right. should be real conversation about what it means to teach fully in Creole. Mm -hmm. And again, if the academic Creole, that is a body, like a government body, like what is its role? And, mm -hmm. and also, with whom are they speaking? It goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think we have a responsibility as scholars, as intellectuals, when we are writing, we have to think about for whom mm -hmm. are we writing? For mm -hmm. whom are we speaking? If we are not engaging with these people, What's the point of me writing an article like only 20 people are going to read? And I think that gives me the right because I was lucky enough to have gone to school and maybe I have cousins, great cousins, other people who didn't have that chance that I can make decisions for all of them without having ever been in contact with them. And I mm -hmm. think this is what sometimes is happening with the, with the debate, you know, so many linguists do not have that experience. Michel de Graaf has done a lot of work in Haiti. He has done a lot of work on the ground. He knows that reality. So mm -hmm. when, when he's speaking, he's not just speaking as somebody who's teaching at MIT. So mm -hmm. I have respect for him. I mm -hmm. have respect for the work that he's doing. But mm -hmm. there are so many other linguists who have been using Haiti just to move forward. They have never been in any places. They're not in conversation with people living in Haiti. And mm -hmm. that's a problem that we mm -hmm. also need to talk about. And sadly, these are the people oftentimes making decisions regarding the role of Haitian Creole in schools, what it should look. They are the one doing the so-called reform. The next area I discussed with uh, Professor Asilien uh, is, is, is timely in the sense that uh, at the time of this interview was about a week before the 12th anniversary of the 2010 earthquake. So I asked her, how should we 
uh, frame using the tools from her book, uh, using Raoul Peck's uh, uh, Fatal Assistance uh, to look at uh, disaster capitalism uh, or toxic charities in uh, Haiti. Yeah, I mean, um, and like you, we think about the big um, earthquake of 2010. We think about the recent earthquake, August 14, 2021. And it is heartbreaking. It is hard to even think about how do we frame this. It's like, history repeating itself. And I think one way, one lesson we can learn from the film that is still as applicable in 2010 as it is today is that we must follow the money or lack thereof. And we must not be naive to think that all these so-called core group and so-called quote-unquote friends that they are truly friends. And until you get to a point where there's that conscience, there's that moral compass, those people who are in position of power, whether the civil society who own so much, who's selling the country bits by bits, and the government, and those who are using the few and the government, until there's some moral compass for them to realize that sadly there may be another disaster where they won't have time to fly to Miami or the Dominican Republic and where they may lose everything as well. Mm -hmm. Until there's that consciousness and awareness mm -hmm. of what should we do as a country, um, I don't know how things are going to change. And I hate yeah. to sound pessimistic because I know they are people who are doing incredible work in Haiti. You know, there is um, um, Asenye Pouaiti. I'm more in contact and line with, uh, with Nadine Paul Dewoli. You know, who's really teaching this new generation about leadership, about the importance of being socially conscious, of having mm -hmm. a moral compass. So I know, and I, my hat's off to the people doing all these works. I know there are, there are countless people we don't hear about who have mm -hmm. organizations, who are really helping people. They're doing it because their heart is in it, not because they want, they want people to talk about them, not to be disaster capitalists, mm -hmm. not to be um, um, missionary tourists, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But sadly, we need the people in power to not just watch the film and know about this film. And I'm not talking about, you know, in, in Haiti, we talk about politique de doublure. Like mm -hmm. there's the person who's president, who may be the prime minister, who's quote unquote in charge, but then there are the host of business people who own the real power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Until these people have an awareness, uh, a prise de conscience, mm -hmm. um, a consciousness, like to to rethink, like there's enough for all of us. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, but for them, they don't see that. They just want more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And that corruption is not just unique to, to Haiti. That's exactly. a problem in this, in this country too. So, of course, <laughs> yeah, of yeah. course, it's just done done um, in more sophistication. My dad mm-hmm. has a saying. He say, um, "It sounds better in Creole." Volea colio. You know the thieves who have on <laughs> who um, you know who have on their um, cravat their um, how do you say call. Who, who have on ties, the thieves with ties, mm-hmm. you know, like um, yeah. the, the blue collar <laughs> thieves. So, and, and that's, that's the thing. So all the thieves, mm-hmm. if they could all come together and at least give Haiti a chance, because everybody's, you know, people are taking, 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 but they're not giving anything. Mm-hmm. And we have to think about the environmental disaster, the environmental crisis that started ever since colonization. Yes. Mm-hmm. It didn't just start like yesterday or in the 80s or in the 90s. No. Mm-hmm. It started when Col- Columbus arrived in Haiti, when the French kept taking, 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 destroying the land. Mm-hmm. We have to think about that. But we also have to give people um, options. It's too easy to say, stop cutting the trees. And mm-hmm. then you don't give them um, oven. We don't use the sun. We don't use the environment. To make mm-hmm. things better. Yeah, well, Professor, we could go on and on and on, but I want to <laughs> give people a chance to uh, to you know buy your book and uh, and and you know create questions for themselves. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before? We um, go? So I just want like a shout out to all my colleagues and especially my co-editor Valerie Orlando. This mm-hmm. book was done in the spirit of combat, and mm-hmm. all the colleagues who contributed, the artists. And also, um, especially Valerie Orlando, who co-edited, and Jessica Adams, who did a lot of work. So mm-hmm. it was in combi. And that's how Haiti needs to work, in the spirit of combi. Oh, that's awesome. Merci, Professor. Thank you very much. Pas de problème. Merci, Patrick. Merci pour bel travail. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. <laughs>